Hello and welcome to the Startup Operator Podcast. I'm Roshan Karyappa. One could argue that the root cause of plenty of problems in India is the acute lack of credit access uh, to people. It keeps people stuck in a vicious cycle that they cannot really get out of and causes plenty of other complications. Smita and Ram have spent the last 13 years of their life uh, trying to solve this giant problem through Rangde, which is a platform that brings social investors together uh, to support entrepreneurs and marginalized communities across India. I spoke to Smita and Ram about how they turned their passion for change into a viable venture, what one should know about social entrepreneurship before getting into the space, and how COVID has changed things for the less fortunate and what they're doing to support them. Along the way, we also spoke about how Rangde has built a, a vibrant community on the basis of trust and transparency and what keeps them going after all of these years. I believe that the hardest problems are just about one entrepreneur away from being solved. And this conversation further reinforced that. I'm sure you'll love this conversation. So do stick around. Hi, Smita. Hi, Ram. Welcome to the Startup Operator Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Hi, Roshan. Thank you so much for having us here. Hi, Roshan. Thank you for having us over. Yeah, great to finally meet you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You know, this podcast is going to delve on some of the nuances of operating in your sector, which is the social sector. And while every founding journey starts with a deep conviction to change things and change the status quo, I think that's even more pertinent in your space, right? So, you know, talk to us about starting Rangde and what has that journey been like over the last 13, 14 years? Yeah, you know, so it all started with this simple idea of you know, getting back to India and starting something meaningful. And this was back when we were both had just got married and we'd moved to Oxford. So after living from there for a few months, you know, we started asking ourselves this fundamental question, you know, what would it take for India to get to a stage uh, where, you know, we were living and we struggled to find the answer. Right? Because, you know, all along in India, we've always heard from our childhood that India is a developing country. And we were experiencing what that developed state might look like. And, and that really bothered us. And, and what we really did was to make a promise to ourselves. We said, well, two years it is. We'll move back to India and uh, start something meaningful. What that something would be really did not bother us. Because if you come from a country like India, you're spoiled for choice. You can pick up any issue and spend your whole life trying to solve it. And... We, we made this promise and then we went about, you know, living our lives, but things started magically happening. Smita ended up getting a government job with the Oxfordshire County Council. I ended up getting a dream job in a US-based company called Vignette. And it was essentially, I was part of their European headquarters uh, in the professional services team. So it was fantastic, high on tech and also a lot of travel. So it required me to travel extensively in Europe, Middle East and Africa. So two years just went past in no time. And 2006 was the year when we, we were really wondering in many ways, you know, what should we do, right? One thought was that we'll just drop everything we're doing, move back to India, perhaps stay in a small village, 80 kilometers from Bangalore, and, and then learn, you know, what it takes to transform a village. But then we were also looking at several ideas, you know, over the last, the last two years, we were looking at ideas like child labor, how can we holistically address the issue? Then we looked at how do we bridge the empathy gap which exists in the country. Because most of us, you know, we have a very, perhaps a 140 character definition of all the problems which India faces. Beyond that, you know, we will really struggle. So we felt that if most of us don't even know what the problem is, 
with all its manifestations, you know, we may not even, you know, make an attempt to solve it. Uh, so the idea was initially to build an online platform, and, but eventually a television platform, which would then bring people closer to the issues. And the third idea we looked at was how do we, you know, create doorstep rural employment? Because very often, you know, in fact, last year, it, you know, panned out quite uh, bitterly. But overall, I think if you look at it, there's a lot of migration across the country, but also outside the country, because there are not enough jobs. And we all know this. But the idea was to use technology, design, and, you know, the logistics and, and, the, and the road infrastructure, which is improving quite dramatically. The idea was to see if we could create a hub and spoke model where the peripheries, uh, you know, 60 to 80 kilometer radius, uh, would become the spokes and they would produce goods and services which the hubs will consume. A hub would be a city like Bangalore. And then finally, we stumbled across microcredit. We just heard that Mohammed Anas and the Grameen Bank had jointly won the Nobel Peace Prize. So our initial response was, well, Bangladesh is a poor country. You know, India is far better off. We don't need microcredit in India. But when we Googled it a bit, we noticed that India was actually behind Bangladesh when it came to financial inclusion, both in terms of access to bank accounts, also access to credit. We also stumbled across an article which was published on Redef uh, in 2004, and we were reading this in 2006, which spoke about how some of the borrowers who had borrowed from a microfinance institution in Hyderabad, how some of them had committed suicide. The article went on to say that the district collector of Hyderabad passed an order saying that all the borrowers who borrowed from these institutions need not pay them back. Now please remember this was 2004 and not 2010. So 2004, it was just starting this whole industry in some sense. So the thought leaders in the sector came rushing to the district collector and said, sir, please take your order back because if you don't, then you'll have to shut down. So the district collector said, I understand what Muhammad Yunus is doing in Bangladesh, but that is not what you're doing in India. Your interest rates are in the labor road of 60% plus. So this will not help anyone come out of poverty. So I'm not taking my order back further and notice that despite the order, the borrowers went ahead and repaid the loans because they were scared that they would not get further credit from the microfinance institution. And then we researched it further and we noticed between 2004 and 2006, except for some academic discussions or conferences, there was nothing much being done to rein in the interest rates. The narrative was that, hey, you know, this would be determined by the markets. So if we have more people coming into the space, uh, they will get addressed. So, so we felt that, and the uh, and then on the other hand, we were reading about Mohamed Dunas. We read his book, Creating a World Without Poverty, and a lot of his uh, articles. And what Mohamed Dunas was doing was radically different and also very pristine, right? So his point was, if you're doing microcredit, then do it in a manner which helps people come out of poverty, right? Do not do this to maximize profits. Do it to really make a sustainable impact. And with this limited knowledge, you know, we looked at how things were happening in India. And our take of that was that in India, it was a classic case of a product designed exclusively for the poor, but so expensive that the rich cannot afford it. And, and that really, you know, we felt that, you know, we should probably, you know, look at this problem. Also because we felt that most of the issues which we face in India, be it infant mortality, poor access to health, education, they're all somewhere connected to the economic you know, status of the individual. And we felt that if microcredit can help address the multi-dimensional issue of poverty, 
then perhaps, you know, most of these issues will get addressed on their own. And, and that really, you know, got us excited about this. And just about then, peer-to-peer uh, -peer platforms were just taking off. So there was Zopa, which had taken off a year ago. Kiva had just taken off in the US. So we felt these models were fantastic. And because it will not only provide an alternative channel for credit, but it will also help bridge the empathy gap when somebody lends money. You know, initially it may be digital empathy, but eventually one day they may just go out and meet these communities and connect in many more ways to, to bring about change. So yeah, so that's how, you know, it, it all happened. Also, you know, very interestingly, we stumbled across this article, which spoke about how the media questioned the Nobel committee as to why they chose to give a Nobel peace prize to a professor of economics. Uh, because Professor Yunus was, you know, used to teach economics and before he started Grameen Bank. So as with anything else, you know, the Nobel Committee got back and they said there was enough evidence in this world to suggest that wherever there is no poverty, there is peace. Because Professor Yunus was working to overcome poverty in Bangladesh, they felt it was a right candidate for the Peace Prize. Wonderful. You know, really fascinating story, you know, just listening to your journey. And it's amazing how deliberate you have been about the problem you choose to solve, right? Because uh, as you rightly said, I think there is no dearth of problems that you can solve in India, certainly, uh, you know, in the social sector, at least, right? You don't even know where to start. And I feel credit access uh, and uh, wealth is such a high leverage uh, sort of an activity, I would say, or an initiative to solve for, right? So I want to talk about the mission a little bit, but before that, you know, Smitha, you know, in these 13 years, were there th times, you know, that you thought that, you know, this is perhaps too daunting a problem, you know, this is too big for us to do anything about it's perhaps too broken and you know did that idealism of uh, having started up paid a little bit and if so you know in these times how did you cope and how did you overcome that situation to be honest roshan we have never felt that way actually the the size or the magnitude of the problem really inspires us to keep going so it's been the other way around so you know no matter what we do you know we always know that there's such a long way to go and um I do think that sometimes it makes us introspect a lot more and not really take some of these smaller milestones that we achieve, you know, we make sure that it doesn't really affect us because, you know, you could always become complacent, right? Saying, oh, okay, now we have done this. But with a problem like this, there's no, you can't ever get into your comfort zone in some sense. So it always keeps pushing us. And, you know, it's uh, fortunate that we have a fantastic team working with us. We only know that we have miles to go to actually solve this problem. Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Okay, let's talk about your mission. You know, as I mentioned, it's very critical, which is, you know, fighting poverty, right? Because one of the acute problems is this lack of credit access that keeps people in that vicious cycle where they cannot really come out of it and, and get better, you know, materially uh, and otherwise. Over the last 13 years that of having tried to solve this problem, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from, you know, that uh, solving this particular problem or trying to solve this uh, problem? Sure, our focus has always been to reach out to first-time borrowers and uh, these are people who have been denied credit by formal financial institutions or have never been offered credit. Because one thing that uh, we knew for sure is since our, you know, the capital that we raise comes from individuals like you and me, the one thing that we wanted to make sure was the money actually reaches the right 
right people and they are able to make the best use of it so that way we've been very focused on reaching out to underserved communities and first time borrowers is how we define underserved communities and there've been many lessons that we have learned right from the fact that uh, how because somebody is poor they don't really have the choice you know which is something that you and me actually take take for granted we have so many lenders you know so many options if we want to get access to credit but the, the same thing is actually denied for the poor and uh, that is something that really really bothered us you know when we started rangde and you know did some research with our own field visits we saw how in some sense uh, microfinance institutions were really cookie cuttering the loans because the communities were considered to be homogeneous everybody got the same kind of loans the interest rates were the same so in some sense we knew that we had to really revisit the entire service design the way credit was actually being delivered to also bring in respect and dignity into the whole you know the way in which credit was really delivered so i think that way to look at it the last 13 years was really understanding the communities we work with how do you make sure that whatever we offer to them we do that with respect and with bearing in mind their interest you know we could sit here and design something that really works for us but without knowing the pulse of the communities and what they actually need we can't design anything for them so making sure that we are community centric investee friendly loans and you know making sure that you know they have a choice to decide what is best for them these are some of the you know bigger challenges that we are trying to solve as part of our overall mission of achieving financial inclusion like a lot of the other sectors right there are some misconceptions that one has about the sector itself or the business model or the way things are run right and you know one of the things i realized and you know i was just listening to this on a podcast that you know we often think of people not very wealthy people or poor people generally as uh, people who will not pay and who are not committed to pay but then they have a higher commitment to pay because it's also seen as a sort of a social stigma to you know not be to default and so on and so forth right and and this is despite being sold really bad products at that i mean at the atrocious uh, interest rates that you that we talk about so are there any other such misconceptions within p2p itself or credit access that you are solving for that you know one should know of yeah i think just to add towards with the mention you know one of the things which you know many of us don't understand how credit is delivered if you are poor in india so the microfinance institutions in india they do not give the choice architecture to borrowers when they borrow what does that mean it means that they cannot choose how much they want to borrow when they want to borrow and for how long they want to borrow so just to let you know how it works the, the women they are part of groups these are called joint liability groups and five women become part of one group and four such groups become one center and whenever they are trained and the groups are formed that is when the loan cycle starts so it starts with 10000 15 then 20 then 25 then 30 and therefore if you see as a country in if you look at the data the findex data which is one of the most credible sources of data you notice that we have not gone ahead mm. in terms of financial inclusion we still stand at single digit we are under 10% when it comes to access to credit credit for eligible population of our country from formal institutions now this is data from 2017 but it's very hard to imagine why that would have changed 
dramatically by now. So yeah, so we have a huge challenge in terms of understanding that credit can potentially become a development tool. Because credit has always been and continues to be treated as a profit maximizing opportunity. And I think that is what we are trying to solve with Runway. And now that we are regulated, it's a beautiful regulation. It's revolutionary in many ways, because now what it does is, and in one individual borrows from another individual that now gets regulated and the credit score gets created. So in all the four credit bureaus, so that's, you know, phenomenal, right? Because it removes the intermediary in some sense, which is the bank and makes it more efficient, both in terms of time and money. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit towards the startup itself, right? And towards how you run your business. You know, we often talk about product market fit on the podcast. And it's usually when, you know, what you have is exactly what the customer or the market needs and finding that, you know, sweet spot, right? So what was your journey like from understanding that, okay, this is a potential hypothesis of a problem. Here is a solution. And then, you know, realizing four things or five things or 10 things perhaps that uh, work differently and then pivoting in an agile fashion to meet that. And then finding that sweet spot where what you have is what they want. So what was that journey like? So, you know, I think we, we initially focused on the product market fit. If you look at, you know, we are looking at two markets in some sense, because we are a peer-to-peer platform. So we have people on one side who want to borrow and there are people on the other side who want to lend. So we initially focused on that because we wanted to validate our, our hypothesis, especially at a time when the popular narrative was the interest rate doesn't matter. And the, the narrative back then was typically a poor woman in a village buys a goat. Typically the goat gives birth to four kids. So the ROI is 400%. So 40%, 50% doesn't matter. So for us, it really mattered because you cannot cookie cutter uh, credit. Uh, each individual is unique, given the fact that, you know, we don't have social security in our country. So early days, you know, it was really tough, you know, because we were just, uh, we were very high on passion and low on la- logic. So we went about, you know, lending initially and we burnt our fingers. Then we, you know, built processes and frameworks around it. And then we started realizing how our credit was creating impact because we're giving them the choice, we're making it affordable. So we, it was a big hit. You know, to, I would not call it a fit, but it was a product market hit. People just loved it. Also, you know, we said, well, don't worry about the purpose. Be as honest as you can. Uh, tell us why you want to borrow and, and we'll lend you money. Who are we to decide uh, for what you can borrow and for what you cannot borrow? Then we did education loans. That was un, a huge hit because uh, we noticed that you know, it's an Indian thing, right? You know, parents sacrifice, go to any lens without complaining to ensure they get a better future for the children. And that happens at all levels. Mm-hmm. We started seeing data that in the communities we were serving, they did not hesitate when it came to, when it came to giving the annual admission fees or school fees to budget private schools. They went and happily borrowed from the local money lender at 5% per month to 10% per month without battling an island. So we said, no, no, we will do education loans. Again, we were you know, going against a popular notion saying that we should not lend for unproductive purposes. So we felt, no, no, no. I mean, this makes perfect sense. We had a very liberal uh, policy in terms of the education loan program. We said, well, you, be, you could also borrow for bicycle if you want to send your daughter by bicycle, it is more safer. 
You could also take a loan for private education in case your children go to government school, you need some extra support. It was amazing. We did about a million dollars, not much, <laughs> but it was a great uh, experience. And overall, I think we've really worked hard in that, in that sense, in validating those use cases. And over nine years, we worked across 18 states and we were able to serve uh, more than 66,000 households. Yeah. So that was the product market hit, <laughs> the demand side, but the supply side, you know, and that is where I think, you know, we hit a lot of air pockets, uh, turbulence because, you know, we never looked at ourselves as a, a tech or a product company. We felt that, you know, maybe we should just focus. In fact, you know, we did not have engineering in house. Even though I was a techie myself, and maybe that's the reason I said, we're not going to do tech. And then, but then we realized very painfully that, you know, tech was something which is our soul. I mean, we need to do this. And then we, you know, we started building an engineering team and uh, pivoted, as you said, you know, we pivoted, we became a tech product company, if you will. And there, I think the product market fit happened a bit more slowly because people have started appreciating what we were trying to do because it's very experiential. You know, our product, if you think and call it a product, uh, it's not something which you wake up one day and say that, Hey, you know what? I want to lend money to someone. So, so people started appreciating and it was very, very organic. And, but then we also saw a beautiful, not a hit, but a fit. So we are away from a hit yet. And then we had to do this RBI regulatory changes, uh, relaunch rebuild the product and all of that yeah so we're still in that you know we are hustling <laughs> to yes. get that uh, get to that fit stage and then uh, to a hit stage as well yeah one of the biggest challenges of running a two-sided marketplace which i think is a very difficult problem to solve is that it's a bit of a chicken egg situation right i mean you have the supply you have you get demand and you have demand you'll get supply it's sort of like that and how you curate either side becomes really really important and I wonder if you can talk us through some of the, you know, principles that you use to curate on both sides. Like, for example, I noticed that, you know, you're extensively focused on entrepreneurs, micro entrepreneurs, and it makes sense. I think India is an informal economy. I think most of India is, you know, some form of micro entrepreneur or the other, right? So are there any similar things that you have noticed on the demand side of uh, things in, uh, sorry, or should I call it the supply side of things in terms of people uh, lending to these folks? I mean, are there any specific categories of uh, people that you tend to focus on and so on? I mean, if you could just talk us through some of those principles. Sure. I think the profile of people who contribute or lend through the platform are, it actually cuts across, you know, different age groups, but uh, primarily it's, you know, people in the age group of say around 27 to 40, that seems to be, you know, uh, the age group. And uh, we have also noticed that people don't just stop at investing just monetarily, right? After a period of time, they start to engage a lot more. They'd like to get closer to the problem to the people who they've supported and in the pre-COVID times people would actually go on field trips visit communities they've supported and often these used to be life-changing experiences for them and that is where the whole you know bridging the empathy gap kind of happened you know we didn't really expect that it's that's how powerful it would be so over a period of time what we have seen is the people who connect with the platform and stay on 
and the way in which their engagement increases is just fantastic so it's um, it starts with small sums of money initially but once they understand the model and appreciate it we see that you know both monetarily and otherwise their engagement really really goes up so uh, i would say that the reason why we are here to today is only because of our lenders we call them social investors on the platform and it's purely because of them that we have actually made it uh, this far and in fact they have made it possible for us to even restart runway after this whole transition happened because i'm not sure if you are uh, aware roshan when this transition was happening you know it was too sudden even though we knew that you know the peer to peer lending regulations would come through uh, when it happened we had to really answer a lot of questions you know to ourselves on how would it be to transition from a non profit to an rbi regulated entity questions like who is going to fund us now because we had to raise equity investments and at that point in fact many of our social investors came forward you know to become our equity investors until date we are entirely funded by individuals and all of them are actually our social in- investors i think we would be one of those unique companies where our customers are also our investors so that way i feel that if you're thinking about the product market fit for us nothing can be a bigger testimony that you know our own customers are our investors and they believe in our mission so much that you know they really you know put in everything that they have to make runway work so you know that's that's been a little experience yeah. on the lenders side and roshan when the regulations came out you know we were approached by many investors commercial impact we really didn't want to go the the path where commit to speculative returns or time bound returns so we were actually taking a step back and at at was that stage you know many of our lenders on the platform we call them social investors they wrote to us and they said that we happy to put in some money in in the company so we asked them you know so what will be your terms you know because by then we had heard many stories about term sheets and they said well you define the terms we'll give you the money even before we knew it we raised Two crores in less than a month from twenty-three individuals without a term sheet. Amazing, and that was a huge shot in the arm. We were so overjoyed, and we said, "Okay, at least we can go and file for the application." We had no clue how we would raise the subsequent rounds, but we said, "You know, we should." We were deeply grateful to them, and we said, uh, "The first responsibility would be to you know, file for the application, then worry about the rest later." and today as we've said you know we entirely funded by 95 angels and they've cumulatively invested a million dollars wonderful wonderful yeah it's also the attribute of the platform itself right you have to go beyond the transaction itself and build that trust and and uh, yeah and and sort of that community feeling as well that you're doing something beyond uh, you know this transaction and you're actually making a difference in people's lives you know i wonder if you can inform our audience about you know community building itself what have you learned about communities some of the do's and don'ts around how one can go about building a community around a mission i think you actually said it roshan it's all about trust and transparency and uh, something that you know we have always believed in is to make our social investors and lenders a part of the family in some sense so for us they've always been extended team members and we have shared everything with them the good bad and the ugly to such an extent that when things go wrong on the field there's been a delay in the repayments our social investors are the first ones to know so we talk less about our success stories but more about our failures and our challenges with them 
and that immediately gets you know makes them feel a part of the community and especially for our early lenders slash social investors they had a sense that they're co-creating Rangbe with us many of them actually went on to you know create local chapters for us and when they would go and speak to somebody about Rangbe people would ask them are you the founding team member of Rangbe so that's the conviction with which people would go and talk about us and you know so what what we really needed to do was just be yourself invest time in them and make them feel a part of the community and ensuring that you're transparent all the time you know ex- uh, not really being insecure about you know your own challenges weaknesses that really really helped and till date we actually maintain the same kind of you know transparency with them uh, sometimes people find it i think it's very difficult for people to accept that level of transparency and we do have conversations where lenders are like oh why have there been delays and things like that but by being open having a conversation with them you're really able to you know address those concerns and they become converts for life you know they stay with you forever so it's if you really are looking at how you help customers transition into lifelong community members you really need to invest and you know make sure that trust and transparency are you know the founding principles and really stay true to true to it right i'm actually reminded of a study that i read some time back where it said that people who had service issues resolved really well had a higher net promoter score than people who had no issues at all so it actually yeah. builds a lot more uh, trust apparently i mean at least that's uh, and that's been anecdotally true for me as well you know we're we're living in such exceptional time 2020 and beyond has been such a stress on all of us phenomenal stress on all of us personally professionally and what you are doing must have assumed a greater importance during these times right so can you talk about how things changed and you know what have you learned from this entire experience yeah i think last year was a very tough year because you know we had just got the license in september 2019 we were warming up to the launch and the partnerships february is when we started getting early signs you know the pandemic may hit india but the moment it happened you know we we put a stop on all our loans and we were wondering what we should do because you know if the nation is under a lockdown there's no point in giving out credit but just about that time we got this distress call from a group of farmers in yavatman the markets uh, were crashed uh, they had just harvested and they wanted credit against the produce they had made and which they were willing to keep in a warehouse they wanted warehouse finance so in 24 hours we raised a million rupees and we gave it to them interest free and and we said okay you know at least we were able to help these farmers and then soon after i mean and if you remember those days you know there were a lot of these whatsapp groups which had kind of you know sprung up almost overnight and there were many of these groups in which this was getting you know talked about saying that hey rangde gave interest free loans to a group of farmers and then we started seeing a lot of people talking about it and reaching out to us and we said okay now looks like despite the lockdown you know this is one community which will have to work otherwise we will not have food on the table so so we spoke to all the you know some of the most amazing organizations in the country like pradhan harsha trust asa vasan many others who all of them said you know we want to be part of this campaign if you're launching a campaign for farmers fortunately for us there was this wonderful collective of organizations that had come together now this is beautiful to see self 
uh, organized kind of a collective called RCRC network. It stands for Rapid Community Response to COVID-19. It was indeed very rapid. In a matter of week, in a matter of week, one week, you know, communities came together. Around 50 organizations across the country came together. Okay. They rallied with the government of India to say that any money which is stuck at any level, it should be instantly released because it will give some relief to the communities. They were able to raise a million dollars to give out as grant relief to the communities. And, um, and we, we partnered with them. And uh, we also, you know, wanted to do this at a national level. The social media can go only that far, especially also that we are regulated now. Many people had to really understand, you know, how this works. And so we reached out to NDTV and very grateful to them. They, they instantly agreed and they said, yeah, you know, we've never done this, but happy to. So they came on board and we did a national campaign. We raised a little more than a million dollars in under a month. It was amazing. And we were able to serve 5,400 farmers small and marginal farmers across 14 states without stepping out from our homes. And, and again, it was a completely, completely a beautiful collaboration and partnership at work. So that was how, you know, our initial response was. And then we did a campaign for artisans because they were in distress as well. Yeah. So that's how we've been responding. And this year we started with education because we felt that a lot of these children who go to budget private schools, they were, they're absolutely lost for an academic year, but also their ability to pay for the fee, you know, is also uh, under a lot of stress. And we did a campaign again. And, and this time around, you know, we had Mohammed Yunus join us. So what we really now are focusing on is, as you rightly said, I mean, we do have a huge responsibility and, and the way we look at ourselves as the first responders to the economic crisis is unfolding and will unfold in the coming weeks and months. So we're looking at uh, reaching out to farmers yet again, at, uh, you know, looking at doing at least $3 million uh, of credit, at least $3 million in two seasons. So there's a Kharif season, which is happening right now, as you speak, and there's a Rabi season, which happens in the month of December. In addition to that, we'll be doing entrepreneurial roles. So overall, you know, our goal is to have to disperse a little more than 60 crores in this financial year. So that's, that's what is keeping us busy and also some exciting partnerships in the pipeline. For example, we, we've just, in fact, we've just uh, got a confirmation from the Indian army. Indian army has agreed to partner with us to provide credit to children of non-battle casualty hmm. army personnel who really struggle at times to get credit. And uh, we're also looking at very exciting partnerships with India Post Payments Bank and a few others. So, yeah, so we're seeing a lot of traction in terms of demand, a lot more than we would see in normal times. And yeah, so we're getting up now to uh, focusing on product and getting more social investors, getting more buzz. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. One of the things that has really, you know, come out in stark thing is that, you know, how much of resilience people have, how much innovation and also most importantly, how much uh, empathy people have. I think the these times have brought out all of the best attributes in, in some sense, right? So it's uh, hard not to notice the amount of uh, passion and the, the sort of visceral energy you have towards the cause as such and towards the mission, right? And it's 
Amazing. So for people who are listening and who want to do something in the social sector, from everything that you have experienced thus far, you know, what would your advice be to them in terms of picking a problem, solving it in a way that it makes a difference and then actually following through and closing the loop and doing it for a decade or, or more than that? I think I would say really believing in yourself. I think that's really the most important thing because, you know, throughout you'll have people will probably say you've lost it and, you know, they'll discourage you. And I think so being very strong-willed and believing in yourself is extremely important. And the other thing, of course, is to make sure that you have the right people working with you. And especially in the social space, because getting talent in the social space is still a challenge. And I would really say that focus on being surrounded by the right people, people who may be smarter than you, but will actually, you know, help address that problem. I would say these two things would be my advice. Yeah, and my advice would be to moonlight, right? Because you don't have to jump in right away. Uh, We moonlighted for many years before we actually took the plunge. So, you know, just do that because, uh, you know, the complex, the, the problems which India faces are very complex because they're also, uh, India is a large country, diverse. So start following people who are thought leaders in that sector. So that you can do a lot, a lot, you know, when you moonlight and then, you know, prepare your strategy and then time box it. Right? Give yourself some time and put aside some money and then really then just dive in because, and then see how far you go. Right? If you don't go too far, then don't hesitate to call it off and then go back where you came from. But it's very important to give ourselves that opportunity and not be you know, worried about what will people say, you know, what will happen if I don't succeed. You know, all of that sometimes you know, holds us back. And I think that is something which you know, I think really helped was you know, we were very clear that we're willing to fail and acknowledge as well. So that willingness really made us come this far. Yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation and I often tell people that I'm the most optimistic person in the world because I get to talk to founders like you who really inspire me that, you know, the greatest problems are just one entrepreneur away that we can just solve these uh, problems. So, so thank you so much for your time. And before, you know, we leave, before we end the podcast, any final thoughts in terms of what's coming up and where can people find you online? Well, I think the best way to find us is on our platform, uh, in because uh, I think they, people just need to connect with fellow Indians on the platform, invest in them and be a part of their progress. I think that's the best way to stay connected with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the current, especially in the current times, I think it's very, very important that, you know, we, we are able to provide credit to communities who are completely you know, affected, you know, you know, adversely and they, you know, really, you know, they're going to have a huge and a tough time rebuilding their livelihoods. So, yeah, I think Rangde would be a great platform for them to participate and reach out to them. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Ram. Thank you, Smita, as well, for joining us on the Startup Operator Podcast and look forward to uh, talking to you sometime soon again and all the best for all of your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you, Roshan. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, then don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite platform and share this episode with all of your fellow startup operators. Also, follow the startup operator on LinkedIn and Twitter for more updates. Stay safe, take care and see you soon on a brand new episode of the Startup Operator.